Gorbachev teared down this Welcome back to the Cold War episode 110, Papa Bear. And as I'm sure you will recall at the end of our last episode 109, uh, the French uh, seized a Chinese junk in Haiphong Harbour up in the north of Vietnam that was carrying gasoline. Vietnam in, uh, fired on the French. The French fired back, broke out into uh, a struggle for Haiphong. The French bombed the Vietnamese and Chinese quarters of the city, uh, aerial bombardment, spitfires shooting down civilians trying to flee. It was all out, uh, an all-out conflict. No no minor clashes, skirmishes anymore. We are now in a full-on conflict between the French and the Vietnamese. It's November 1946. Yeah, World War II has been over for... A year and not even a year and a half. Right, right. And the French finally have the excuse they were looking for, or at least some of the French, like D'Argelou um, and, and, and the general. Um, but the point is, they have their excuse. Uh, they can say, you know, rightly so. And you know, if you if you look at it um, specifically, that the Vietnamese fired first, so they have their reason, and now they can just finally let it all out, go after these guys, and try to take the entire country you know i'm sure this is like the the attack on the lusitania or the gulf of tonkin incident mm-hmm. where it was spun by the french back home as oh we were doing nothing <laughs> just sitting there yeah, guys were just sitting there fishing <laughs> enjoy you know smoking a, 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 a cigarette, oh, a rolled up cigarette. Uh, enjoy, yeah. enjoying the enjoying the sky yeah uh and the vietnamese just shot us out of nowhere for nothing. They're motherfuckers. Right. We have to kill them all. Um, <laughs> I died. Because that's the way these things get spun. And it's only yeah. decades later, usually, that we find out what really happened. Yeah. Now, uh, all of this uh, got the attention of the Americans. The US consul in Hanoi sent a telegram to the White House reporting that even though the Vietnamese fired first, the French had provoked them yeah. by taking the port through force. Now, the U.S. ambassador in France was instructed to express American unhappiness to the government in Paris, but the French responded by saying they had proof that Ho was taking orders from Moscow. Mm. So, you know, how how much do you believe the French, uh, Ray? I I don't because as we're going to see in this episode and the next episode they're going to get some other stuff wrong but yeah so the Americans can say we are displeased but at the same time because as we're going to see later on that everybody's got suspicions in not everybody but a lot of people in Washington have suspicions that you know Ho is a communist he's trying to turn the country communist and so even though they're kind of slapping the hand of the French it's not a hard slap because again they are doing God's work they are you know checking uh, the spread of communism but so yeah you're right because the, the French say look we have got proof positive that Ho is not only getting advice but he is taking instructions from Moscow so when you have something like that with all the tension that's going on between Washington and, and Moscow, how, how mad really can the Americans be at the French? And the French said, and also Saddam Hussein has WMD. 
absolute proof. <laughs> Absolument. Yeah. Um, well, as we'll see as we go on, this was absolute bullshit either way, whether they believed it or it was right. complete fake news. Um, the Moscow had nothing to do with Ho Chi Minh at the right. time. They had enough problems. They were reading the anyway, newspapers. The U.S. consul in Saigon, Charles Reed, uh, warned back to Washington that if Cochin China fell to the Viet Minh, they would then unleash a propaganda and a terrorist campaign in Cambodia and Laos. And this was the very first time that Mm. an American official talked about what would become known as the domino theory. Mm. Now, here we are talking about Ho barely having enough weapons, and he's afraid to take on the French. He's afraid of what's going to happen. And now, supposedly, supposedly they're going to spread their views and, and start trouble in two other countries. I mean, that just that had to be based on fear, apprehension, or emotion, because it makes no logical sense. They're barely hanging on. And right for right now, they're getting their ass kicked by the French. How could they possibly cause trouble in other countries? Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, they're accusing, you know, Charles Reed is suggesting that Ho's going to launch a terrorist campaign in Cambodia and Laos. Now, if we know anything about Ho Chi Minh, right. the uh, Confucian scholar, the warlord, no, he's not your terrorist <laughs> campaign right. guy. <laughs> That's not his milieu. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> if he has to fight a war for the independence of his people to kick out yeah. imperialists, yeah. he's going to do whatever it takes, as we're going to see. He doesn't fuck around, ho. Right. But um, it, it takes him a while to get warmed up to that point. But he's hardly your, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, terrorist campaign yeah. fanatic. Exactly. Yeah. So fuck Charles Reed and his domino theory. Uh, you know, and, and look, the domino theory is an interesting thing. Like, part of my brain goes, well, hold on a second. If the people of Cambodia and Laos uh, want communism, who are you to deny them that? What right, right does America have to tell the people of these countries? It's like, oh, we believe in freedom of ind- freedom and independence unless you choose the wrong right. form of government, <laughs> in which case, no. We're going to no, come down on you. In which case, yeah. we're going we're gonna to stop you. On the other hand, I mean, if you genuinely believed that uh, Ho was going to export terrorism to these countries and go in and slaughter millions of people, then, okay, then maybe you would be justified in trying to stop that. But the United Nations exists at this point, and that should be the role of the United Nations, mm. not the United States, etc. As Venezuela much. right now should be the role of the United Nations. And right. If there's intervention is required, then... It's not the job of America to intervene. It's the job of the United Nations, as it would have been then. But again, based on everything that we know about Ho, I mean, here you have Ho under threat from his own people because he's trying too hard to avoid war. Right. And you have this American consul saying, oh, this guy, if he wins, oh, it's going to be terrorist unleashed. Right. Um, I don't know, man. If I could just add to that real quick, Let, let's say that um, Ho was an out-and-out communist and he screamed to the skies that I want to bring communism to, to Vietnam. Compared to the last, what, 80 years 
of the people's lives of Vietnam they, who have been pretty much squeezed out of anything valuable from the French. And if a communist state did emerge and they did try to educate the people and try to feed the people and try to treat everybody basically as equal as they possibly can, yes, corruption exists everywhere, that would still be a hell of a lot better than what the two or three or four generations have gone through before them. So even that would have been an improvement for them. But again, in this current political climate, everything red is bad, and it has to be stomped out. Yeah. Now, in late November 46, the U.S. State Department sent a guy called Abbott Lowe Moffat, ALM, (laughs) So to he was the chief of the division of the Southeast Asian Affairs to Indochina right. to assess the overall situation. He's on a fact-finding mission from the State Department. Mm-hmm. Now, this guy, ALM, was actually an outspoken supporter of uh, the cause for Vietnamese independence. As mm. I said in the last episode, right. um, you know, even in Washington, there were people that were pro-Vietnamese independence. There were people that were pro-French colonialism. Um, people that wanted American interests to come first. Right. So just like in um, in Ho's own camp, there are a multiplicity of views, of course. That was also true in Washington. This guy was a big supporter. Wow. He was instructed, though, to assure Ho that while the U.S. supported the agreement that Ho had developed with Sontani back in March, mm-hmm. that he should not use force he should accept a compromise agreement with the French in Cochin, China. Right. And that if he did those things, the French government would not try to restore complete colonial control over into China. Oh, shit. Now, I don't know on what authority uh, <laughs> right. ALM had to speak on behalf of the French government, seeing as he was uh, an American. Yeah. But that's what he was told to tell Ho. How did that go? Yeah, I just have to say, uh, in regards to Moffat, um, for everything that he's telling Ho, uh, I think it's important to remember that the French aren't offering anything. I mean, they've taken coach in China. They've set up their own puppet leader. They're now attacking in the north. I mean, it's not like um, Ho is, it's not like the the American can say to him, look, you need to meet them halfway. The French aren't trying to meet them halfway. So I'm confused by his, um, by his message, his warnings, his admonitions. I mean, yeah, I, I get where he says, try not to use force, but the French are already using force. So I, I, obviously this is not very helpful. To Ho, and we know, we know how very hard Ho has worked, you know, establishing contact with the Americans over the years. Yeah, look, I think this is just, um, I think this is the Americans telling Ho, look, uh, mm-hmm. you're gonna lose uh, if you use force. Uh, we don't want, you know, it, we don't want to see you guys get your asses right. kicked. So. Try and work out a deal with them. I mean, if you put yourself in the, the, the shoes of the mm-hmm. Americans or the French in late 1946, you know, you've got to think that if the Vietnamese uh, go to war with France, they're going to get yeah. destroyed, absolutely destroyed. It's going to be mm-hmm. genocide, right? Um, and no one wants to see that. No reasonable person, no non-psychopath wants to see that happen. So, you know, I, I think if, you know, if I was there uh, advising Ho in late 1946, I'd be saying the same thing. Listen, look, try and right. do whatever you can to avoid this turning into a conflict. 
because um, it's going to be a fucking bloodbath, and no one wants that. No one wants to see that. That's true, but again, what Ho could come back with is, so basically what you're telling me, again, is to accept slavery over death. And we've been doing the slavery thing for a couple of decades now. We're a little tired of it. Maybe we're willing to die to avoid slavery. I mean, obviously, he doesn't say that to American, but I could easily see that being his mentality, you know, in the back of his own head. Not not that I know what he yeah. thought, but, you know, come on. It's, this is our yeah. chance. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. And it's more than a couple of decades, by the way. I mean, the French mm. have been there for nearly a century. Before that, it was the Chinese. Oh, the Vietnamese right. haven't had independence for centuries. Right. And, yeah I, yeah, I think his view is, okay, well, listen, if if a f- couple of million of us need to die um, and, so and it takes, yeah. takes 20 years, 30 years in order for the people, uh, you know, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren – Right. To be independent, to be free, then that's what it takes. You yeah. know, somebody needs to step up, and it's it is time. And and is not all, but I think as obviously the uh, great number of his countrymen agreed with him. Yeah, that this is this is what needs to happen again because it's freedom or death. You know, uh, independence or death. We don't want to be slaves and treated yeah. like shit. We don't want our children, our grandchildren, right. to be slaves and oppressed. Uh, yeah. We're yeah, we're done, as you said. Yeah. So um, Moffat did meet with Ho in Hanoi. Um, Ho reported that he felt desperately alone. Hmm. He wasn't getting support from anyone, not the Americans, not the Russians, not the Chinese. Right. Uh, well, he's getting some weapons, I guess, coming in from someone in China, but it's obviously not from the Kuomintang. But it's not free either. Yeah, sure. It's, nothing's free, um, yeah. as uh, you found out when you went to that <laughs> brothel in Vegas and you thought I thought I could a just famous smile. podcaster. Yeah, and, and just yeah, rock no, up. No, yeah, nothing. No. nothing. Now, Ho's also very, very ill at this point. He's suffering again from tuberculosis, very, very sick. But again, he, he tried to assure the Americans that his main objective was independence, not communism. Yeah. Uh, look, communism maybe one day, uh, but you know, we right now we just want our freedom. And again, he offered the Americans uh, the uh, the ability to build a naval base at uh, Camran Bay, mm-hmm. named after me, of course, in <laughs> Vietnam. Big big fans of mine <laughs> uh, back then. Uh, Camran Bay. He said you could build a base yeah. there, a naval base. Yeah. It's about 290 kilometers, 180 miles northeast of Saigon, um, up the coastline. Unfortunately, Moffat didn't have the authority to accept the offer. But anyway, he said, look, the US doesn't have any interest in a naval base in yeah. uh, Vietnam, quite frankly. Um, <clears throat> of course, they did end up building a base at Camran Bay in the mid 60s. Uh, <laughs> but but then it was the- to fight Ho. Not right. to support him. So well, it turns out they did want a base there, but for the wrong reasons. Well, not only that, and we're talking early December here when these two gentlemen are talking, but at the time, I mean, the United States, and I'll put this as delicately as I can, we own Japan. We, we've taken it over. We've got troops there. There's a major, you know, 
port facilities right there in uh, in the Far East. So yeah, so maybe one day we could use this. But as far as offering to this as a carrot, I mean, we're, we're doing we're doing okay now. We pretty much have Japan, so this is not as tempting as Ho has uh, to offer. But again, that's pretty much all he's got. And I just want to make the point for the uh, for the umpteenth time is that you know Ho could say if the devil with all his horns, his long tail, his shiny red suit, came to me right now and said, I will offer you assistance. Ho would take it, because like you're saying, no one is offering him anything. He is alone. His country is alone. It is up to them. And like you said, if they're going to do this, it's going to take a long time, and they're going to lose a lot of people, but he has no other choice. There are no other options. Hmm. So the conversation with Moffat ended with no real result. The United States again lost a chance to prevent war here. Not that it's necessarily their responsibility, but they could have stepped up and played a stronger role in mediating between the two, but they really are half-arsing the whole thing. Let me ask you this before we go on. I'm sorry. Considering America's influence at the time and that we are giving France and a lot of other countries, you know, economic aid, whatever, that kind of stuff, and and we're obviously giving them our Jeeps and trucks and weapons so they can fight the uh, the Vietnamese. I mean, even just sending someone over from Washington who just sits there at the negotiating table. They don't even have to say anything just to have a representative of the United States there at the time and just watch these two people talk. They don't even do that. They just come over. They give some admonishments some warnings. They talk to people and then they leave again. You're absolutely right. They're not even trying and maybe they have different priorities. I don't know, but maybe they just see this as a French issue, but they're not even going through the motions. This visit that lasts for days is literally the equivalent of nothing. The United States is not, for whatever reason, is not getting involved in this. Yeah, not that the French and the Vietnamese are sitting in a negotiating right. table anyway at this stage. It's well beyond that. Well, right. not but they that were Ho's previously. Not trying. Yeah. Ho's trying to get everyone back to the table, but the French just won't have it. Exactly. Now, Moffat's report back to Washington stated that, in his view, the Hanoi government was, in fact, under the control of communists. Well, mm. yes. Yeah. Um, but he also said they were probably in regular contact with the Soviets and the Chinese, and that the right. moderate and pragmatic views of Ho were being challenged by the hardliners like Jap and Trong Chin, who had this visceral right. hatred of the French. Now, he did recommend that America should get involved in supporting a settlement between the Viet Minh and the French to try and limit Soviet influence uh, and also to protect Chinese influence, uh, protect against Chinese influence. Mm-hmm. And other foreign observers at the time came to the same conclusion that you kind of had Ho, who was very moderate, right. and he was under threat from the hardliners that were trying to take over the party. But I don't know, man. I think Ho's playing good cop, bad cop. I right. think Ho invented good cop, bad cop. <laughs> I think he's like, you, listen. I you want know, you to say you, this. You do this. <laughs> no, he's like, listen. I, you got to do. You got to help me out here because if my if my partner comes in, yeah. oh, oh my partner, he's screaming. crazy. Yeah, he oh. wants to kill you. He's going to come in here and beat you with a telephone book. <laughs> he's Vic Mackey, my partner. He's right. going to come in, pull the pull the security <laughs> camera out of the wall, and just start hammering oh, right, on right, you. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Listen, just tell <laughs> me where the bodies bit. are. Right. I right. look like Dutch in in the Shield. Dutch is like listen. 
you know, who hasn't wanted to rape a 12-year-old? I do it. I, I've got 12-year-old nieces. I look at them all the time and if I'm I like, could oh, get away with it. yeah, look, I don't blame you. I want to do it as well. But listen, you know, you better do it before my partner comes here, right. he might rape Claudia, because she's, she's yeah. crazy. She, she will fucking throw the book at you. I think that's what Ho's doing. Right. I think Ho is just as hardline as any of these guys. Like, yes, he's trying to negotiate a peace. And he doesn't want to go to war because he's not insane. Right. But um, <laughs> I don't think these guys are the hardliners. I think uh, he say, oh, these hardliners, they're up my ass. Listen, help right. me. Do a deal Master before it's too late. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Fucking actor, puppeteer. <laughs> and the award goes he's, to? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is Sir John Gilgood, man. He is playing everybody. <laughs> Um, 4D chess, man. Right. He's, he, no, no I, I do think he yeah. was he was the leader of the hardliners as well as the leader of the moderates. He's like, listen, I'm going to go to every length I possibly can to avoid war, but if it comes down to it, I'm going to fucking go to town on these <laughs> French motherfuckers. Don't you worry about it. But if I could go back to Moffat for a second, I mean, just like you said a second ago, he tells Washington, look, I think that there's direct contact between Ho and Moscow and probably the Chinese communists. From what we know, that is not based on anything. Is it hearsay? Is it what the French are whispering into his ears? And so it doesn't matter that he is coming across as the moderate because the idea that he's linked to Moscow trumps everything. And with that kind of attitude, Moffat also tells Washington, you know what? I think considering that they're getting their cue from Moscow, I think we want some kind of French presence in Vietnam because not only will it check the Soviet influence, it also might stop the Chinese invasion if that is ever going to happen if the communists win. So, And it's all based on hearsay. Hopefully the French are going to win because we think there's a connection between Moscow and Ho. And as far as I can tell, there's absolutely no proof. But his, he's the guy on the ground, and that is what he is sending back to Truman. And so as far as the United States is concerned, in the form of Moffat, it's best for the U.S. if there is some kind of settlement along French lines. As far as we know at this juncture, the only contact Ho is having with the Soviets is third party. Right. It's coming via the French Communist Party, the FCP. Wow. Uh, he has no direct line of dialogue with the Soviets. Remember, you know, we talked about this in earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. The Soviets aren't really sure at this stage whether or not Ho's even really a communist or if he's in line with the Chinese nationalists. Right. Uh, whether or not he's a, a really just a nationalist or a communist. They're not really sure where he's at and they're not really investing any effort in finding out either. They're too busy just doing their own thing, um, you know, trying to rebuild their country after being annihilated by the Nazis and and they're trying to build a bomb to uh, defend themselves against the Americans. Should that go bad, they're trying to work out what's going on in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. But here's here's one of the things that I find fascinating because – before, you know, we, we keep harping on the United States because they could do something. They're almost the only people that can. But the point is, we have to remember that this situation in Vietnam is not in a vacuum. It's not just by itself. Because there is the civil war in China. And what if the communists win there? And what if Ho is a communist? Could the communists suddenly take 
two countries and then spread their views even further. So I think there was just a general fear of a red rising and the fact that you have these two countries that are touching each other that may potentially go communist was making Washington very nervous and more likely to support the French, even though they're cocking it up completely and hundreds of civilians are being killed. But again, I mean, what's it got to do with America if these countries go communist and other countries go communist? Why is it any of America's business? I completely agree. But considering the tension between Truman and Stalin, um, Stalin probably has a certain view of any communist because of his dealings, his very frustrating dealings with Stalin. I completely agree with you, but I'm, I'm guessing his dealings with Moscow was affecting his view of everything else in the world. Mm. Well, as we've seen, uh, I guess, in earlier episodes, at this stage in late 1946, American domestic politics is being dominated by the Red Scare. Um, you have to be seen to be tough on communism. The Republicans right. are attacking Truman and the Democratic Party is being too soft. They said FDR was too soft on Stalin. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Truman's being accused of potentially being soft on Stalin, so he has to look like he's tough. Tough. Yeah. How tough are you? Um, lumberjack tough. So, I don't know. Moffat's comments about the communist influence in Vietnam really got attention, but in the wrong way. Moffat was a supporter, as I said <laughs> right. earlier, of Vietnamese independence, but his remarks about them being connected to the Soviets and the Chinese communists ended up being used as the basis <sighs> for American support for the re-establishment of French colonial control in the area. And he regretted that. Uh, He felt like he fucked up, and he did fuck up by Mm -hmm. saying that. A, he was wrong, and B, his incorrect statements were used to justify decades of American oppression of the Vietnamese, French and then American oppression. Moffat himself was uh, actually cognizant of the fact that this fear of communism was leading American policy away from supporting the national aspirations of independence in the people of places like Vietnam. Right. But um, he fucked up. Seems like he was a good guy, but he fucked up and um, played a a role in this all going extremely pear-shaped. Well, I think the historical forces at play were just much larger than him, much larger than almost probably anybody else. And so he can write whatever he wants, but it's, I think it's going to be viewed through a certain lens that is the fear of the red menace. And so I think it's already started. And so the fact that he was, you know, on the side of the Viet Minh is irrelevant. Washington is going to twist his words into, you know, into their own reality. Meanwhile, Dr. Jean Lou is in uh, France, Dargy, in November, as I said earlier, <laughs> trying to get approval right. for a. Pre- I don't know why that's funny. To get a preemptive uh, campaign uh, against the Viet Minh. Mm-hmm. But there had been another election in France, and oh, this yeah. time the socialists had won again. Mm-hmm. Bidot is on his way out, and the, uh, the MRP. He's on his way out, but he did meet Dr. jean uh and warned him that while he was sure he would get reinforcements, Indochina could not be preserved by force alone. Right. They had to negotiate. Now, Paris then appointed Jean Santigny as the governor of Indochina to replace General Moliere. Uh, Santigny was the guy that was 
quite friendly with Ho. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that chaperoned Ho's trip to France, took him out fishing, uh, right. took him to his sister's uh, house for lunch, you know, hung out with him for several weeks. So they're sending him back there uh, as the um, as the, 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 the governor, hopefully, I guess, the, the socialists are hoping that he's going to help sort out this this sort of clusterfuck of uh, a situation. He yep. left for Koshin, China on November 23rd, just a few hours after the Haiphong incident where they seized the junk. So by the time he gets there on December 2nd, uh, the place has erupted yeah. in violence. He's got instructions from Daji advising him not to move into the palace too quickly in Hanoi where he ends up, because it might be seen as a provocation by the Viet Minh. And he also advised him not to go too far in forcing Ho and his government to take desperate measures. But I think it was too late. Yeah, I mean, he has he has this order from Paris, not, you know, try, try not to let the war go on. Let's see what we can do. But, I mean, you know, like I said, forces of history are certainly against him. And D'Angelo's uh, attitude was mirrored by... Valouy, who wanted Santini to strengthen the moderates within the government. And, and I just wanted to ask you for a second. So this guy who is, um, who is um, what, um, given plenipotentiary powers, is supposed to go into this country and tell Ho to change his government to better suit the needs of France. And this is somehow supposed to work. He's supposed to go in there, try to strengthen the moderates within the Viet Minh, uh, create an atmosphere for talks. Um, and I just, again, we were harping on this on the last episode, the, the arrogance of the French were supposed to go in there and we don't want to crush them. Well, some of us want to crush them, but we will crush you if we have to. But if you just change everything about yourself to suit us, then we can all get along. Just, just the arrogance that the French are coming with. I, I just don't see how this could have turned out any other way than, than, than a clash of arms. Yeah. I mean, the only hope that there was at the time is that there would be a new French government that would back down mm-hmm. and be willing to give up Indochina to, to do the right thing, yeah. basically. Tall but, order. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like, it'd be like asking the Americans to do the right thing now in Venezuela. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, the, the wheels are too far in motion. It can't be stopped. Right. So, meanwhile, the French were landing troops in Da Nang Harbour. Da Nang is about, again, halfway up the Vietnamese coastline. Right. Um, And now this, again, was a direct contradiction of the modus vivendi and the Ho-Sontany Treaty between the two countries. Now, this raised suspicions that the French were planning a surprise attack. But then Ho heard about the change of government in Paris and decided to wait to see what would happen. Sontany and Ho met, but as the new French government hadn't been formed yet, remember last time when Ho was trying to negotiate with the French, he went to Paris and there was no government. (laughs) That was only like six months earlier. (laughs) Now they've got another government, but it hasn't yet been formed. They haven't figured out who's in the cabinet. So there's no one to talk to. There's no one to get instructions from. 
So Saltony and Ho met, but there wasn't really anything that they could talk about in terms of serious uh, matters. They talked about Ho's health. Saltony did say that they, the French wanted Ho to remove the radicals from his cabinet. Look, we like you, Ho. Yeah. Because you're, you're, you're a moderate kind of guy. Right. But those radicals, uh, those hardliners, go. those bad cops, yeah. Vic Mackey. Right. No, no, we can't, have, we can't have Vic Mackey in control. Oh, God. You need to get rid of the radicals. Ho's like, oh, sure, get rid of the radicals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, first thing when I get back, I'm going <laughs> to remove all of my own people from my own party. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Anything else? Want me to chop off my left nut while I'm at it? You- you you want want what else do you want? I mean, come on, yeah. Geez. yeah. Do you want to take my sister from behind with a strap on? Sure. You're like, what else? My wife? Sure, I'll take my wife. Well, I've got two. <laughs> take my wife, please. Take either one. Boom, boom. Yeah. Can, can, before we go on, I just want to ask because I, I don't want this to get glossed over. So France can vote in a socialist government, because that's what Leon Bloom is. The socialists are about to come in, but Ho can't bring in a leftist government. It's okay for France, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it's not okay for Vietnam. How's it okay well, for the French o- to have o- o- okay, okay to who? To the French. To the French. I, I mean, they're, they're sitting there thinking the worst of Ho, or the Americans, I guess, are thinking the worst of Ho, because he's, he's leftist. You know, is he going to go communist, or, or is that his goals? Is he talking to Moscow? But the, the French vote in a socialist government, and as far as I can tell, uh, they were okay with that. And as far as I could tell, Truman was okay with that. I, I just find that confusing, you know, just a double standard, unless I'm reading too much into it. Well, yeah. Look, as we'll see, it it's not that simple. Um, mm-hmm. There were again, as I said before, the wheels were in motion um, and and continued to be in motion despite who the government of France was. Okay. So anyway, um, Sontany uh, later told the American consul O'Sullivan that unless Ho removed the radicals, the French were prepared to engage in what he called a police action to get them out. Right. Like we just, you know. 24 hours, roll in, get them out, you know, we're done. You know, uh, we've got George Bush's uh, Mission Accomplished banner, it's out the back. (laughs) we got it ready to go. We're ready to, yeah, ready to whack that up. In and out, done done. and dusted. (laughs) Yeah, one and done, son. Oh, my God. I don't know how you say that in French. (laughs) And do. Feel. (laughs) But as you can imagine, O'Sullivan reports back to Washington. Uh, he's got a different take on this. He says, action to rid country of Viet Vietmen will, I fear, greatly exceed police work and will take much longer than short time Santini foresees. So again, here's this an American on the ground looking around going, yeah, yeah, it's not going to be that easy. And if it does blow up, it's going to be a hell of a lot more than just cracking some heads and bringing this country, you know, back to where you wanted. Uh, I think even, you know, back then in 1946 or early 47, I can't remember, this Amer- late 46, this American sees the potential for a quagmire and he's probably thinking, thank God I don't work for the French. Yeah, thank God America's not involved in this quagmire. <laughs> Woo! Dodged a bullet there. <laughs> I'm surprised by Sontany in all of this. i got to tell you, like, he yeah. has spent a lot of time with Ho. Right. Um... The fact that he can even think that this is gonna that this is gonna be an easy 
road to hoe. Right. <laughs> Easy road to hoe with hoe. Uh, I can't right. even begin to imagine what he's thinking here. I guess he's just French, man. What or, can you say? He's just French. Or that he could just rock up and uh, and say to Ho, hey, hey, buddy, hey, longtime friend, look, I just need you to get rid of the what I consider to be the radicals in your government. Can you do that for me? Can you change that? Thanks. Thanks for doing me a solid. Thanks I'll a lot. Yeah. yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Fist bump. Yeah. 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 Come, come on. Yeah. Now, finally, in Paris, a new government is formed with Ho's old friend, the socialist leader, Leon Blum, as... The leader. Now, this is the same Bloom who, a few months earlier, mm-hmm. had assured Ho, I will be there at difficult moments. You can count on me. Oh. So Ho's got to be thinking, fucking, I did it. <laughs> yes. I did it. I lasted. We hung on yes. long yes. enough. Now we've got the right government in France. Right. This is all going to come together. Yeah. Finally. Finally. That television production deal in, out of L.A. that we've been working on for years, one of these deals is uh, finally going to come together. Yeah. We're going to be rich, famous, right. cocaine hookers. <laughs> Hong Kong. Little boys. Yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah. yeah. Do it. Depravity <laughs> is ours, finally. <laughs> the United States of depravity. 14, 15 years I've been making podcasts. <laughs> Yes, I, I got a brief mention in uh, Brandon Newberg's History of History podcasting. I enjoyed uh, that. Fucking, uh, uh, it, was a, it was actually a good show, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. It was, it, he did a really good job of, of telling the story right. of the evolution of history podcasting as a format. It sounds ridiculous, but he actually did a really good job, yeah. I thought, making it entertaining. Um. So, but, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's what Ho's thinking. Finally, we're there. <laughs> Finally. Now, this Mission is, of course, Leon Bloom's, yeah. Leon Bloom's second stint as prime minister. He was uh, prime minister in 1936 before World War II and did a great job keeping France out of World War II and uh, preparing them for the defence of uh, a possible attack from the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So got a great oh, track yeah. record, yeah. Leon Bloom. Let's get this guy like, back fucking, in there. Yeah. 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 Oh, he did such a good job. Give him another shot. <laughs> but this time it's Vietnam, so we should be okay. But but you're right, when Bloom, when Bloom comes to power again, and, and I wish I had a, one of those clickers that you can click every time you want to count something, uh, Ho sends another letter to um, to Bloom with his ideas on how to reduce tension, how to make this stuff work. I, I can't remember what number uh, email this is from Ho, but again, he's sending another message to a French president. Look, I got some ideas on how to calm the things down so we can actually get together and start having a dialogue again. That's what Bloom is. That's what's waiting for Bloom on his desk when he walks into the prime minister's office. Yeah, Ho's just cutting and pasting that bitch by now, man. It just changes the date. It's in, it started in 1919. Yeah, he just crosses out the date, 1919, 1921, 1946. Oh, my God. And it's really simple. It's just like, I've got some suggestions. Yeah. Give us our independence. Hit reply. That's all it is. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. That's it. Give oh. us independence and freedom. That's yeah. all. You can still make money with us. For. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll work yeah. on it. Well, we, we still need to sell our rice and our right. rubber to someone. Right. We'll sell it to you. Make it's okay. We'll give you good terms. Make me an offer. Yeah. Oh. Um. Now, just a week 
earlier, Bloom had written in the socialist paper Le Populaire that French policy in Vietnam was bankrupt. He wrote, There is one way and one way only to maintain in Indochina the prestige of our civilization, of our political and spiritual influence, and of our legitimate interests. We must reach agreement on the basis of independence. We must keep confidence and preserve friendship. That's nice. Finally, a leader of France had right. used the magic word independence. Independence. Yeah. So Ho's got to be feeling good. Unfortunately right. for him and everybody else, it was too little, too late. Bloom presided over a weak government. In fact, it was only a stopgap government. Mm. Um, it was only meant to serve out the final weeks of the provisional government uh. until the constitution of the Fourth Republic kicked into effect at the end of the year. So he's in no position right. to quickly do anything, let alone reverse the sort of aggressive policy towards Indochina that had been taking shape over the last four, five, six months that um, Bideau was running things. Um, he had not even been able to have any influence over the negotiations in Paris um, back in Fontainebleau. Right. And even if he'd been able to do something now in Paris, as we we're about to see, the momentum in Vietnam was going to take its own course. Yeah. People... The French commanders in Vietnam didn't really give a shit at this stage. What anyone from Paris or the United States thought, they yeah. were going to take affairs into their own hands. National honor. And I just want to mention that. And Ho is oh, cognizant of, of, of the potential for danger here. So even though he's sending letters to Bloom, he is still working with party members just in case there's war. In fact, I think it was by October, the ICP, the Indo Indochina Communist Party Central Committee, was operating, was meeting in secret. So again, Ho is trying for for peace. He is trying for negotiations, and I think he is sincere in that. But at the same time, he's a realist, and he is doing what he needs to do with his other hand in order to prepare for war if it does come. I think he knows, as everyone yeah. knows at this stage. It's, it's, but you still got to try. Happen. Yeah, yeah. You still got to try. Yeah. Um, but it's you know he's been getting nowhere now for a year. Yeah. Um, and the guy that he's put in command of building up the entire military operation in secret is Van Tian Dung. Mm -hmm. Now, 30 years later, he's going to become famous for leading the final offensive on Saigon in 1975. Wow. Yeah, so th so this is the guy. Yeah, so um, so the Central Military Committee is set up. They pick their leaders. It's kind of like a general staff. They have party commissars picked for key positions in the army, and party committees are set up in various military zones. So they they are literally laying the framework for a future army and a, and an organizational chart in case they have to use it to take on the French if this does become a countrywide conflict. Throughout late 1946, the newly named Vietnamese People's Army expanded to 60,000 troops as well as the 12,000 on top of that that they already had right. fighting in Cochin, China. 
the but on top of that, that's the official army. But then they had local militia and guerrilla units mm-hmm. that were almost at a million people. Jeez, I I'm sorry, but this, the math and I don't do maths, but ma- the math doesn't add up. I'm going to have ten, twenty, twenty five, thirty thousand French, and yeah, we're all going to be heavily armed, whatever. But you're going against roughly a million people. They've got the support of the the locals. I mean, again, I, that's why we now use the word Vietnam when we when we mean quagmire because the French have. I, I do you think they have any idea what they're getting into? Or are they thinking like, no, we can dig them. We have French. I mean, just the arrogance of these Europeans is astounding. And maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it shouldn't be. Well. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult um, to, to, to get in the mindset of the French then, but it's not really. It's kind of the same mindset that America yeah. is in today, I think, or large parts of America or American leadership. It's this uh, sort of arrogance that, well, might is right and, yeah. um, you know, what we say is right is right. Um if we say you're a terrorist, then you're a terrorist. If we say you're a dictator, you're a dictator. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't really matter what the facts on the ground are. Um, we yeah. we are right and we are great. We are a great nation. You know, despite what happened during World War II, the French were and, and remain a very proud people. Um, mm-hmm. They had a long and storied history, a lot of success. Obviously, Napoleon and all of that kind of stuff. They ruled right. Europe for a little while there. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, they ruled the fucking popes, as we know in our Vatican right. show, for yeah. our Renaissance show. They ruled them for 100 years. So, like, it's no way a lot of the French can say, oh, okay, we're going to give in to these slanty-eyed, brown-skinned uh, barbarians. Right. The the gooks. I've got a whole thing on gooks later. Um that's how they thought of them. The, wow. you know, not all French, of course, but enough, enough. thought of them yeah. as gooks. You know, they're just uh, barbarians. We're not giving up a significant part of our economy, mm-hmm. of the wealth of our country, and our national pride to a bunch of gooks. Um, it's just not going to happen. Going to make um, us. Yeah. Exactly. Well, they, they, that wasn't even conceivable. Right. But they don't even know that right. there's a million people. Now, villages throughout the country were told to make preparations for self-defense and turn themselves into combat villages. Mm. Even though weapons were still in short supply, one French source uh, at the time calculated that the army, the Vietnamese People's Army, the VPA, had about 35,000 rifles, Mm -hmm. 1,000 automatic weapons, and 55 cannons. This was 70-odd thousand troops. Right. So only one in every two uh, soldiers actually had a rifle. Wow. Um, The rest had machetes and pointy sticks. And and, a bad um, attitude. Shurikens, which they were getting in on ships from China, Japan, just (laughs) nunchucks and shurikens. Ninja star. Now, they started building weapons. They built a weapons manufacturing plant um, up in the north in Viet Bac, their old uh, headquarters mm. north of Hanoi, because mm-hmm. um, they realized, well, if we can't get them in via ports anymore, we need to start making our own. Now, I remember when I was recently um, rereading a biography on Che Guevara, 
uh, how he uh, and Fidel, but Che was the leader of it, set up weapons manufacturing plants early on in the revolution when they were up in the mountains of Cuba. Wow. They started making their own bullets and their own weapons. And I was like, how the fuck do you do that? <laughs> I couldn't do like, that. <laughs> and this is... This is pre-internet. Right. How do you how do you, you look Google it up on YouTube? Yeah, build a build a gun factory <laughs> or a mine factory. Right. Like, I I assume that they were like by uh, Chase time, they were getting smuggled uh, or they were getting like uh, guides out of China or Russia. Uh, uh, sorry, how to do that? And this is how you build a gun factory. Wow. Like, fuck, how do you do that in the middle of a jungle where you don't even have roads right. or electricity and you say, oh, we're going to build a gun factory. I'm like, what the well, fuck? That, how do you do that? That part I do I, know. You, I'm, flat out, yeah. I'm flat out hanging a picture on a wall, <laughs> Ray, and having it not fall down. It's a major accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you go Look and at a me. rare and a rare and a rare accomplishment for me either. <laughs> you go, the assumption if I hang anything on a wall is it is gonna fall down in the next it's couple just, of hours. It's that's just a matter of weather. in my house. Yeah, that's just basically to go near that it's gonna fall. No, as far as electricity, I think that would be rather easy to figure out. You get the professor from Gilligan's Island, he'll go in there, get a couple of coconuts, and pretty soon you've got an electric plant. I'm sure I'm sure he could work that out, but but I know that I couldn't. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're building a weapons manufacturing plant. Now, Jap had told Ho that he thinks they could only hold Hanoi for a month if they were attacked by the French. So he starts, uh, ordering preparations for a new base to be built at Tantrao, which is, uh, again, a small valley sort of north of Hanoi, about 200 kilometers northwest of Hanoi. It's also where Ho and the Communist Party had their headquarters before the right. forty uh, the the revolution, the, the announcement of independence up in forty five or whenever it was. They dusted it off. Um, yeah, dusting it off, getting back. But I wanted I want to talk a little bit about uh, the weaponization of these villages. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Zhap was running an education campaign in villages across the country. Uh, trying to teach them how to turn their villages into combat villages, uh, you know, how to sharpen sticks and machetes Mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, it didn't all go smoothly. Now, again, as I've pointed out in the last couple of episodes, when you're running a revolution like this, not everybody is going to be on board. And even in these villages, there were, of course, wealthy villagers, wealthy landowners it's the same as you know you would find anywhere where there's uh, a people's revolution. There are going to be people who are wealthy, the upper middle class or the upper class, mm-hmm. the elite in that village. They they have a lot of land, they have a lot of money. Everyone else is poor, but you're always going to have your local chieftains, right? That right. have usually through intimidation or violence have have uh, put themselves in positions of power. Every small town has these guys, right? And that's always been the case. They're the right. yeah. They're your local psychopaths, your local sociopaths. Um, plug for my book, the Psychopath Economy. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, well, by the time this podcast comes out, it's probably too late. But anyway, don't worry about it. You've all yeah. You've always got these psychopaths. So not all of these people in the villages were on board with a revolution that was going to overthrow the existing order. Some of them said no, some of them fought back. Mm-hmm. And 
as a result, got assassinated by Zap. He was also running, yeah, they, you can call it a terrorist campaign, but you know, it's also just removing the intransigence. The people right. that aren't getting on board with the revolution to overthrow the French yeah. were removed. But like the nationalists. He was very careful. Yeah, like the nationalists or just the wealthy landowners who were like, mm-hmm. no, fuck it, I got a good. It's good. No, no, I say no to the people's revolution. I'm doing okay. <laughs> fuck all Status y'all. quo, baby. Exactly. Yeah. And as I think we mentioned in an earlier episode, like there was this religious cult that were also oh, yeah. trying to fight the communists and they took care of him. So they're, they're getting rid of these guys. But Zap was very careful about it because he knew it was a double-edged sword. There's only so many people right. you can kill. Sure. Before the people go, well, fuck you guys. You're just <laughs> right. as bad as the French, right? Yeah. Um, they go to hell with it. If we're going to get killed regardless, we might as well band together and take you on. I mean, basically, the view that the communists had towards the French, the people could have it against the communists if you are taking out too many people. But mm-hmm. I want to acknowledge that assassinations yeah. were definitely part of what the Viet, Viet Minh were conducting against Vietnamese people. Right. During this and, you know, the, rem- the remainder of the, the war. But again, you have to understand that, um, okay, they were, they were serious. They weren't fucking around. Right. We're going to fight a revolution against the French to get independence. If you're not on board with that, yeah. sorry, we're gonna, you, you have yeah. to be removed. I mean, I mean they, they couldn't just tie them up and put them in jail. They didn't have jails. They didn't have the wherewithal to manage that and, and maintain that and feed them. and So, so you, yeah, people yeah. were killed. If you don't get on board, and this is what I often say about Stalin mm-hmm. um, during the, the 30s uh, and his purge and all that kind of stuff. I'm not justifying this. I'm not saying right. killing is okay, but I'm going to say you've got to understand the mindset of a revolutionary. We are fighting a war to the death for the independence of our people. Exactly. If you're not on board, if you're going to put up a roadblock, we are going to kill you. Get out of the fucking, or in Stalin's case, throw you in a, he did throw people, obviously, in gulags and, you know, assassinated, murdered, executed, whatever you want to call it, potentially a million, two million people as well. Yeah. It's, um, you know, my way or the highway, basically, is what these people are trying to do. I mean, we can sit here in our undies in our uh, (laughs) air-conditioned white man luxury Right. And say, well, that's that's not right. Uh, they're, they're they're assassinating people. Yeah, okay, but these people are fighting a war to the death. Yeah, um, for generations. It's like if you're yeah. you're Rick Grimes. These people are Rick Grimes in Walking Dead, man, trying to defend themselves against the zombie hordes. You get in the way of defending your people. Uh, him defending his family against mm-hmm. the zombie hordes. Rick's gonna Rick's gonna take you out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and Rick Rick was a cop. Right. Before that, it was a sheriff or a cop or something. I don't remember. Something I only like watched that, yeah. the first season. Got bored with it after the first season. Mm. But my kids keep me abreast of everything that happens. Yeah. I'm like, really? I don't. Like, if I wanted to watch the fucking show, I'd watch the show. Don't, <laughs> don't I tell don't me about it. I don't want to listen to you talk about it for an hour. <laughs> I might as well watch the fucking might show. Might as well listen to the podcast. You go, no, no. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you this bit. It's great. I'm just going to tell you this bit. It's great. Oh, it's fucking great. I don't care. Yeah. No, but, but now. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, look, they did use it. It was used selectively, but yes, they, they had people executed who got in their way. Right, yeah. Because because if they lose, the French are going to come in and people are going to die like had died before. So there's still going to be deaths, but they're, they're trying to achieve something. And so both sides... It's the trolley. What? Sorry, go on. 
it, no, sorry, keep going. I thought you were finished. Okay. It, it's uh, Yeah, so both sides are uh, gearing up for war because they know that this is coming. Tension is rising. So like we said a minute ago, the Viet Minh forces are building up. They've got, um, what, like 10,000 men, uh, 10,000 combat militia inside the city um, ready to go. They're obviously hiding out within the city. They've got homemade weapons. But the French are gearing up, too. They've got thousands of uh, troops in the Citadel in Hanoi. They've got tr- troops in the hospital. They've got troops in the gov- the former governor's palace, the rail station, the Bank of Indochina, and along the bridge. So both sides know this is coming. I think Ho might be the only one still sending emails talking about let's reduce tensions and and talk to each other. But both sides are pretty much gearing up. And this is exactly what D'Angelo wants. And like you said earlier, he is not listening to Paris. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to finish off with the assassinations by saying it's it's the revolutionaries version of the trolley problem. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the the train is hurtling down the tracks. There's a lever. If I if I send it to the left, uh, one person dies. Right. If I send it to the right, um, everybody on the train dies. Yeah. A thousand people. Um, that's, that's basically, yeah. I think, how they justify to themselves executing people it's the trolley problem right yeah. but you you know if you watch ken burns's documentary or you you read a lot of particularly american books on the vietnam war they go oh the the viet Minh were brutal killed their own people mm. um they make it they, they make it sound like they're they're brutal you know terrorists yeah. of their own people and enjoying it and you know yeah. that's one perspective maybe that's true I'm not defending them because I wasn't there. Right. I don't. I didn't see it happen. I don't know what the circumstances were. I'm just saying that the other perspective is it's the trolley problem. Yeah. Kill one to save a thousand. Right. Yeah. Sometimes that's revolutionary justice, revolutionary logic. Right. Yeah. And just imagine if it's they, cowboy, cowboy what, justice, cowboy. <laughs> cowboy diplomacy or cowboy justice. Yeah, but if they have this horrible fight with the French and the French win, can you imagine the reprisals the French are going to carry out? So, yeah, people are going to die either way. This is just a fucked up situation. Speaking of cowboy justice, um, Victor Santoki, my mate in L.A., big fan of our shows, Mm -hmm. big fan of this show, looked after me when I was in L.A., took a day out of his life, very, very generous, sent me a message the other day. His brother uh, has just bought house in Deadwood that's three houses up the road from where Sheriff Bullock okay. lived <laughs> and died in Deadwood. Wow. Um, that's cool. So next time I come over, man, we're going to do a road, road trip, trip to Victor's brother's house. We're just going to rock up and go, hey, listen. Hey, big fans. Your, your brother. Yeah. Your brother's a big fan of our show. Right. So <laughs> we're staying at your house. Um, so that's it for episode 110. Uh, a million, a million people, militia, guerrilla units, wow. plus 70,000 people in the VPA getting ready to take on the French yeah. in our next episode. Uh, coming up next week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Papa Bear. Thank you.